Well, as I shared uh, earlier, we are beginning a new series through the book of Daniel. Uh, it's in the Old Testament. It's part of the prophetic literature. Uh, so there's, as we get towards the end of the book of Daniel, there's all sorts of foretellings of things to come uh, in the future. But this, uh, this particular book sort of begins around 600 BC. So it's a very long time ago. It's in a very different era. And yet there are some very uncanny similarities to our day and age. It's very, it's very interesting because when we get up, or when we come to church and we hear the Bible taught, we're hearing from ancient literature. We're hearing from things that have been around for thousands of years and it's been taught on for thousands of years. And yet what we're looking for today is how is this relevant to you and I? One of the unique things about the Bible is that it has the power to speak into our current day and age, not just sort of globally or politically or socially or culturally, but into our own particular lives. And that's why when you come to church, we teach the Bible, because we believe that God speaks through the Bible and God cares about people. And so he speaks not just about the big things, but also about the little things, not just about world events, but about our personal lives too. That's one of the reasons that we go through different books in the Bible. Actually, we believe the whole Bible is God's book. And so what you'll find is that from time to time, we'll go through books throughout the Bible, through different uh, parts in history. And this time, we're looking at the book of Daniel. Now, Daniel's a very interesting uh, character as we sort of, we, we sort of learn about uh, how he was risen up to be a bit of a... Um, a leader in his early years, his formative years. He was uh, taken as one of the um, captives out of Jerusalem, taken to a different land, the land of Babylon, uh, to, the, uh, to the capital city uh, there in Babylon by a foreign king. They were sort of conquered and they took the best and brightest and they wanted to essentially indoctrinate them and brainwash them uh, in the ways of this new empire, this empire that was essentially a global superpower uh, in the 6th century BC. And so when we look at the book of Daniel, we see, uh, I guess, an image of a people who are in exile. Because this didn't just happen to Daniel and his friends. There was sort of a number of people that were taken over three su successive groups out of Israel and out of Jerusalem and taken to another land. Uh, they were essentially, uh, the idea was to destroy their culture to uh, inhabit them with um, other gods, other religion, uh, other culture, and to change the very way that the people uh, understand things, to actually eradicate their, their system of belief entirely. In fact, what you'll find is that the book of Daniel is written in two languages. Uh, in the original, we find it's written in the Hebrew, and it's also written in Aramaic, which was, is a combination of the Babylonian language and the original Hebrew language. So even their language changed over this time. So that by the time you get to the first century, uh, when you read the Gospels about Jesus, well, the common language was Aramaic. Most people spoke in Aramaic. They might have done their religious worship in Hebrew, but the common language was in Aramaic of the Jewish people. So there was a huge impact that this had upon God's people. And the reason that they were taken into Babylon, we just, uh, very briefly, it's just sort of an offhand comment in verse 2. It says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, this king Nebuchadnezzar. This was God's judgment on God's people. So God allowed this to happen. God allowed his, 
nation's capital, Jerusalem, to be destroyed. He allowed the temple to be desecrated and the articles of worship to be taken from their rightful place in the temple to a temple of a different God. The idea was, like from the foreign king, was to eradicate that religion, to make it subservient to their gods. And yet God was working in the midst of it. So as we come to this series, uh, we've called it Faith for Exiles. And one of the reasons is of the uncanny similarities between our age for Christian people and that age for God's people. There's a few uh, commonalities when it, what it means to be exiles. So let me uh, just read out three particular ones and there's a few nuances I want to point out for you. Uh, firstly, if you're a religious exile in a different place, you would have had an erosion of your God as the authority in the culture. You would have an erosion of your God as the authority in the culture. So when the Jews were in Jerusalem, their God was the authority in the culture, their book was the authority in the culture, and everyone accepted that. Now they're in Babylon, they have no authority in the culture. Their God is not at the top of the food chain anymore. They're in a different system. And we see this particularly because, verse 2, the vessels were taken from the house of God and brought and placed in the treasury of the God of Nebuchadnezzar. So there's, like, their religious system has to fit into the bigger, broader system of that time and that place in Babylon. So that's the first thing, the erosion of God's authority. Uh, the second is there's this pluralism in the Babylonian culture. That is, that they, they worship many gods, not just one god. So, for example, the Babylonians had, and we actually see this oddly enough in the names that Daniel and his friends were called Belshazzar, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were actually names of different gods that were in Babylon at the time. But all their original names, Daniel and his friends, uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and Daniel, referenced the one true God, Yahweh. And so they've been renamed because in the culture in Babylon, there's many different gods. You had a god for fertility, you had a god for war, you had a god for agriculture, you had a god even in different industry groups. So there would have been different guilds, you know, the, the blacksmiths and the farmers, and they would all have had their different, even local gods, that they would worship and honour to try and get a blessing from those gods. That's how it worked in that day and age. And this is very hard for the people of God in the 6th century because they didn't believe in other gods. They believed in one God. And it's totally different on one particular plane because the Babylonians were able to accept that Israel's God was one of many gods. Israel could keep their God as long as it fitted into their system. That's why Israel's God went into their temple. And so, you know, as, as long, the Babylonians were okay with the Israelites as long as they were willing to fit into their system of religion. But the Israelites' system didn't work with that. They had the one true God to the exclusion of all others. Every other God was false, an idol, just made of wood or stone. Constantly we see this refrain, particularly in the book of Isaiah, I am the Lord, there is no other. So we see this pluralism in Babylon, that these 
people in exile are experiencing, this idea of live and let live. You can have your God, we'll have our God, as long as we can all agree that there's many different gods, that's okay. We see in the book of Daniel there's a segregation of public, secular life and private religious life. That is, Daniel could keep his gods that he worshipped as long as it didn't interfere in public life. As long as he didn't try to impose his values on other people, he could keep to himself. But Daniel's God wasn't like that. Daniel's God, Yahweh, ruled the heavens and the earth. And so that was a very hard thing for Daniel to do and he didn't actually abide by those rules. There was enormous social, religious and cultural pressure to conform in this uh, pluralistic society. So what we see is that uh, you know, the food that they ate in Babylon was different to the food that they ate in Jerusalem. And, that, and food is a huge expression of culture. The Israelites had particular foods they could eat and particular foods they couldn't eat. And so like, straight away, the culture was putting pressure on them to conform to the social norms. Even their names were changed. Their very identity of who they are was associated with the gods of that land. And we noticed something else. There was targeted education to make the next generation conform, and even through coercion, because we, we learn a little bit later in Daniel uh, chapter 1, that if they didn't abide by these rules, their life was on the line. There, would be, there were threats against their very lives if they didn't abide by the system. So the education was targeted at these bright young people to conform them into its ways. There was enormous social, religious and cultural pressure and there was a segregation between public, secular life and private religious life. This is what it meant to be in exile for Jewish people in Babylon in the 6th century BC. How would you feel? Well, let me put it a different way. How do you feel? If you're a Christian person in today's day and age, you might feel a similar sort of pressure upon you. That there's been an erosion of one God as authority and culture. In the, uh, what used to be the, you know, the religious West, is now the secular West. There's pluralism, many gods, live and let live. Love is love. All sorts of idioms. The idea is that you can have your own beliefs as long as you don't try and impose them or interfere with other people's beliefs. You can have your religion as long as it doesn't interfere with our secular freedoms in the world. There's enormous pressure to conform socially, culturally, with targeted education to change the minds of the next generation to believe in these things. How do you feel as perhaps a religious or Christian person in today's age? Do you feel the pressure? Over two and a half thousand years ago, perhaps it's not so different. One overarching thing that really shapes the book of Daniel is this principle, though, in verse 2. And again, I've mentioned it before, but I'll say it again. And the Lord gave. God is in control. Not the governments of the world, not the cultural, not the people who shape culture, the influences of our day and age, not the powerful business people, not the educators, not the systems and structures that we have in our time and place. No, God is in control, no matter what other structures are underneath it, which is worthy just to pause in for a minute 
because one of the things that has caught many Christians and religious people in this day and age is a great fear that things are getting out of hand. What will happen? What will happen to our religious freedoms? What will happen to our children? What will happen to the next generation? It seems as if God may not be in control. And yet, what does verse 2 tell us? God is in control. He's above all of these other systems, though he doesn't agree with them, of course. God is working out his good purpose, not despite it, but in the midst of it. And how is he working out his, God, his good purpose? Through his people. Through his people. Not despite his people, but through them. And of course, we know this. We know this because in the New Testament, Jesus came and inhabited humanity. God became a man. He dwelt amongst us, the Bible tells us. He revealed that he loves humanity, but how did he come to save humanity? By becoming one of us. By changing us from the inside out. By dealing with actually much greater threats to our person and soul than the structures we see in our world or the belief systems in our world. Sin. And Jesus would deal with that once for all on the cross where he would take its consequence and penalty upon himself. And so really, the book of Daniel is utterly helpful for us in our day and age because it gives us lessons for how to handle ourselves in a culture which doesn't believe in one God, where they believe in many gods. It gives us lessons for how we are to handle ourselves when Christians no longer have an authority in the public space. In fact, Christian authority in the public space is seen as a social evil in many spaces. You will know this in your workplace. You will know this in your place of education. You will know this in your families. You will know this on social media or general media. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. And yet God's purpose is not to work despite these things, but through a called people in the midst of them. And Jesus did that very, very thing. That's a very long introduction, but I thought it was helpful just to expand a little bit. Which is a problem, of course, because now I've got to cut down the rest of my sermon. But here we go. All right, I've got two ways a secular and pluralistic, pluralistic culture is seeking to transform the next generation. The first thing I'm going to share with you. The second uh, is one helpful, unhelpful response and two right responses. So let's go quickly. All right. Uh, what are the two ways that, our, that a pluralistic or secular culture is seeking to transform the next generation? Look, we see it in our text, don't we? We see it in our text uh, from verse 4. It says they're trying to get these youths who look good, who are really skillful in wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding and learning, and they're competent to stand in the king's palace. These are the, the leaders of the next generation. They've been headhunted by the best in the king's palace, the global superpower. It's like you know, one of those talent shows. They're trying to get the best of the best out of Jerusalem. We are going to totally brainwash these people. We're going to educate them with the best things. We're going to give them the finest of our culture. Why? To show that our system is the best system in all of the universe. That's what they want. Babylon wants to be seen and Nebuchadnezzar wants to be seen as the king above every king. That's a dangerous thing, isn't it? We learn a little bit later that 
Nebuchadnezzar pays big time for that. That's the goal, that's the objective. They want to indoctrinate this next generation in their ways. The idea was that Daniel could have his gods and his friends could have their gods, but they would have to accept other gods too. They would have to accept that all roads lead to Rome, as they say. That everyone can have their own belief system, but really we're all going to end up in the same place, aren't we? That's the secular worldview, that everyone can have their own belief system, and it could be true, but we're all trying to achieve the same, achieve the same things, aren't we? Can't we all just get along? Of course, this great uh, secular social experiment hasn't really worked throughout history. turns out secular governments can be just as oppressive as religious governments. But that's an argument for another time. One of the, one of the big um, illustrations that's, that's often used and uh, was perhaps used in Daniel's day but, but really came out uh, in India was the illustration of the blind men and the elephant or the parable of the blind men and the elephant. You may have heard of it before. The idea goes, there's three blind men that come up to an elephant. And, uh, and, and the, the point of the parable is to explain how we're all kind of looking for the same God, but we only get one piece of the pie. So three blind men come up to an elephant. Uh, one blind man sees the foot of the elephant. He goes, hmm, it's kind of short and it's, it's hard and it's stocky. So elephants are short and hard and stocky because he's sort of feeling the, the short leg of the elephant. And then another one of the blind men is, goes up to the elephant and is, sort of touches its side. I go, no, it's, it's wide and broad. All elephants are wide and broad, the second blind man says. And the third blind man goes to the tail end, unfortunately, and sort of, um, it's a bit fluffy and it smells a bit. And he said, oh, elephants are a bit fluffy and they smell. And the, the point is, and, and there's, a, a, there's a storyteller who's narrating this, uh, and as a kind of a royal figure, a, a kingly figure. And the king says, well, they all only see in part. You know, so one sees the tail and the, the smelly part. Uh, one sees the, the, the broadness and the wide part. And one sees the shortness and the stockiness and the hardness. But they're all seeing the same elephant. And the point that's shared at, at, at that end is that, well, all religions are really just seeing one part of the picture. You know, we, we, but... They're not seeing the whole elephant. There's really an elephant there, but, and that's what they're all looking for, and they've all got one part, and that's why they disagree, but really they're working towards the same thing. A, um, a missionary uh, in India, his name was Leslie Newbigin, uh, was often quoted this parable because uh, he was trying to reach people who believed in many gods. And they said, well, you know, you've got Jesus... We've got a few thousand gods. Can't we all just? Can't you just fit your god into our system? We'll take Jesus on as another god. So Leslie Newbegin, the intelligent person that he is, responded like this. He said, "The story is told from the point of view of the king and his courtiers, who are not blind, but can see the blind, that the blind men are unable to grasp the full reality of the elephant and are only to, able to get hold of part of the truth." The story is constantly told in order to neutralise the affirmation of the great religions, to suggest that they learn humility and recognise that none of them can have more than one aspect of the truth. But of course, the real point of the story is the exact opposite. 
If the king were also blind, there would be no story. The story is told by the king and is the immensely arrogant claim of one who sees the full truth which all the world's religions are only groping after. It embodies the claim to know the full reality which relativizes all the claims of the religions and philosophies. To put that in a nutshell, if you're the only person that can see the elephant, what a statement. What a, what a bold statement that you can make. Everyone else is blind, but you can see the elephant. All other religions are just groping one part, but you see the whole thing and truth and reality as it is. That's a big claim to make. That's a sort of truth claim that a secular society hates, and yet it makes all the time. Christianity, of course, is very comfortable making truth claims because it believes in one true God who claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Jesus. Christianity can only make those claims because of the claims that Jesus himself made and proved. So pluralism is taught today as a total social and cultural philosophy trying to uh, transform the next generation. The other thing which is going on uh, in Daniel's age and certainly is going on today is an, undisciplined, uh, sorry, an undiscerned consumption of culture. So what you'll notice is that the, uh, the Babylonian authority, they put food and wine and you know, different cultural practices before uh, Daniel and his three friends in order to make them Babylonian. Now, we don't have uh, the same uh, food restrictions today as Christians. We have great freedom today as Christians. And yet, we still need to be discerning with our consumption of culture. I'll be really brief on this point. But our way of consuming culture typically now is through media and entertainment. Now, media and entertainment, of course, can be good. But undiscerned consumption of culture will make you think like that culture without even knowing it. Uh, and one of the problems with it is it can be like drinking salt water. It leaves you depleted but thirsty for more. I don't know if you feel like that when you consume the media of our culture. You're depleted but you're thirsty for more of it. That's why the, um, the uh, new phenomenon of binge-watching has sort of become a thing binge-watching television shows or movies and that kind of thing. And, and we love to do it because we, we feel relaxed while we're doing it, yet afterwards we feel more tired and more depleted, and yet we can't think of anything else we'd like to do. Isn't it interesting? Uh, a a uh, older... Well, he's long, long since dead now, but an, an older pastor, theologian called Robert Murray Machaney says this, he says, sit loose to the world's enjoyments. Be sober. In a little while, you'll be at your father's table above, drinking new wine with Christ. You'll meet with all your brothers and sisters in the Lord. You will have pure joy in God through ceaseless ages. Do not be much taken with the joys that are here. If you are ever so engrossed with any enjoyment here, that it take away your love for prayer or for your Bible, or that it would frighten your heart to hear the cry, Behold, the bridegroom cometh then your heart is overcharged. You are abusing this world. And, and this, is, this is well before television. 
this is you know, a few hundred years ago that this was written, and yet the same issues faced uh, Christians and uh, people in culture, is that what do you consume, it's like garbage in, garbage out. What do you consume shapes the way that you think. And so it's utterly important that we discern what's happening, what's, what we're taking in to ourselves. So there's two things, two ways our secular or pluralistic culture is seeking to transform the next generation. And you will find that it is the younger generation that are imbibing the pluralistic views the most and consuming the most of the media. It can happen to anyone, of course, but they're the ones, because they will shape, they will be the leaders of tomorrow. So they're the ones that have been targeted at the moment. What is, what is one unhelpful response? Well, one unhelpful response is to form religious, exclusive religious enclaves. Uh, amongst a group of devout Christians, in 1693, they were Mennonite Anabaptists, led by a guy called Jacob Amman. Uh, they uh, decided that the world was going in the wrong direction and to maintain Christian purity, they needed to isolate themselves from the rest of society. And so they uh, became what we now know to be the Amish movement. So from 1693, they've sought to maintain the exact same way of life in order to protect themselves from the outer world. And again, today, many Christians feel the same pressure, probably more so than previous generations, possibly. The same pressure that if we cut more ties with the polluted world outside, then the the purity of Christianity could be maintained. I've heard it again and again and again, particularly in the last two years, thinking, do we need to just get out? Do we need to form our own enclave, isolate ourselves as Christians? Move away, you know, because the encroaching power of the world. Now, just offhand, I think that's driven by fear primarily and not in context of God being ruler overall. But actually, interestingly, this was the same fear that, or issue that was happening in Daniel's day. But Daniel was reminded by the prophet of God these words from Jeremiah 29. I'm going to read this out for you. This is Jeremiah telling the exiles how to behave when they're in these conditions. He says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Okay, so really specific. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons or daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find welfare. What is God saying? Don't give up. Don't isolate yourself. No. Be, be the leaven that makes the whole lump rise. Be the salt that seasons the dish that makes it taste better. Be the salt that becomes the preserving agent for that city, for those people. Through the goodness of God in your life, transform society for their good because God loves them too. And through your good lives and through the witnessing of your word to the God that you believe in, they will come to believe in Him too. They will see 
your good works and testify and glorify your Father in heaven, Jesus says at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Why? Because that is the way that God works. He doesn't work through isolating and excluding ourselves from society. He works through Christians being in society, rubbed in like salt, preserving, making things taste better, and also maintaining their godliness by being light at the same time in contrast to a dark world. So you're supposed to keep working in a secular workplace. You're supposed to stay in secular education if you can. You're supposed to learn the education system and be part of it. Go to university. Join the industry groups and yet stay distinctly Christian. You're supposed to be out there, salty, rubbed into the world, preserving it, making it better and yet so different that you won't bow down to their gods, you won't worship their gods like they do. So different that they'll look at you and go, I can't, I can't understand what, how you do what you do, but I like the way that you live. Why? And then you share about the God that you believe in. This is how Christians are supposed to behave in our day and age, not by forming exclusive religious enclaves. All right, to finish, two right responses to a sovereign God. If God is truly sovereign, this is good news for exiles. If God is truly sovereign, if he really is at the top, if he's the one that gives over, he calls, Nebuchadnezzar is called my servant, the servant of God and, and the other prophets. Gee, that's a scary thought. And yet it's a very comforting thought too. Let's look at it. What are two right responses to a sovereign God? Well, I think the first right response to a sovereign God is holistic worship. Holistic worship. The reason is, is because when we look at Daniel's example, he and his friends were under enormous pressure. Enormous pressure. You know, you can imagine, and, and actually, they could have thought to themselves, because later on we see they reject the king's food because they knew it would defile them as Jewish people. They had to maintain their distinction as God's chosen people. And so they wouldn't eat the food, the defiled food of the Babylonians. And they cut a bit of a deal and it worked out really well. But that was under threat of their lives. But we see that Daniel and his friends had something in their hearts, despite a lack of cultural affirmation, despite it not, they didn't even have a temple to worship in. Where was their place of worship? They didn't have one. They, and they, you know what? And, and Jewish people and God's people were laughed at by other cultures because every other culture could point to, well, this is what our God looks like. And there was this idol, giant idol. They probably had a little one in their house. They said, well, what does your God look like? We can't even see it. So how did Daniel and his friends worship God? They worshipped him through their work. They worshipped him through their education. They worshipped God by the way they conducted themselves. They worshipped God by keeping his law in a place where it wasn't accepted. They worshipped God by being excellent. We learn later that Daniel had a spirit of excellence and faithfulness upon him that infuriated the people around him and yet they couldn't pin him for anything because he lived such a righteous life. So what kind of way can you worship in a society when you don't have 
cultural affirmation, when you don't have protection in law, those kinds of things, you do it through every part of your life. Why? Because we have a sovereign God. And He's Lord of all. And so there's no part of your life that is excluded from worship to God. Not one. If you believe in God, if He is your Lord, then every part of your life is an expression of worship. There is no exceptions to that. And you're totally different to the system of the world because people can worship many different gods, but they might, you know, worship the God of their career today. And they might go to work and they might pour all their energy and effort into their career to the exclusion of everything else, sacrificing family, sacrificing friends, just to get career, just to get ahead, to get status, to get power, to get finance. They're worshipping that one little god of career. And then when life's at its end, they wish they worshipped some different gods, perhaps. But you, if you believe in a sovereign God... You cannot worship the God of Korea because God cares about every part of your life. Everything you do should be an act of worship to the sovereign God who cares about you. One of the amazing things that we see particularly as we move to the New Testament is that Jesus expressed this himself. You know when God became a man, we call that the incarnation, that's the that's a technical theological word. In the incarnation of God, the God-man, Jesus Christ, lived this out. He worked as worship to God. He was part of a family as worship to God. A son to his mother. A brother. You know, a friend. He worked this out in culture. He stepped into culture. He stepped into a system of like a, a people who are under a system of government and a very complex system of government too. He stepped into a culture where pluralism was even more so there than it was in Daniel's day. And he worked within it, didn't he? Everything that Jesus did was worship to God the Father and he obeyed God's law perfectly in every way. Did he not? Look at the Gospels. Look at his life. And yet he did it out there in community, but and yet so distinct. His life was so attractive, so compelling to those around him. You know, work, family, government, culture, religion, philosophy, he experienced it all. Our God was not, is not just Lord of every domain, but he's been in every domain. How much more when we see the life of Jesus can we not exclude any part of our life from worship to him. And yet further, how did he express his worship? What did it look like for Jesus? It looked like servanthood. Jesus was a man who laid down his life for others, who washed the feet of his disciples, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. What did Jesus do with his life? You know, he, he didn't come just to rule over others, he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When you look at the life of Jesus, you see, someone, you see God inhabiting humanity, living out the way we ought to live, but you also see him using his life in the service of others. And we see the penultimate example of that in his death for sinners. 
How much more could God serve us than by dying on the cross for our sins? Think about it. A, a, a whole humanity who rejected him, and yet he, with arms wide open, says, here I am for you. I'll take the consequence of your sins so that you can have eternity with me. That you will receive the reward of a new heavens and a new earth that only he deserved and yet he gives it freely. What an amazing sovereign God that we have who is utterly worthy of worship. There's a hymn that goes, one of the lines is, crown him Lord of all. Crown him Lord of all. Let me say this, that Jesus, rather than enforce his power over us through coercion and indoctrination, like a secular world or a pluralistic world or any world power will continue to do, they will, they will try and force it upon you. Jesus compels us to his lordship by love. That's how he does it. And so to the degree that we see that it is out of love that the sovereign God in Christ gave himself for us, that he gave everything and every part of his life for us is to the degree that we will give all of ourselves to him. The great antidote to the pressure of a secular and pluralistic culture and world is to worship wholeheartedly the God who gave himself fully for us. And why would we not? If he has given utterly everything for us, the only right response, because of his great love to us, is to give everything we have utterly for him. And this is where it starts with someone like Daniel, with the next generation, with people who see that no matter their circumstances, which they're not in control of, have a sovereign God who can work through their life to bring about transformation to an entire culture. This was just the beginning for Daniel and his friends. And it was in their workplace. It was in the midst of this place, not despite of it, not despite the culture that God would use them. I said there was two right responses. There's one to finish with. It's an unusual one. I'll, I'll give it that. It's called the limiting principle. The limiting principle. A guy called Soren Kierkegaard, which is a Danish philosopher. He didn't live very long, but he wrote some very important things. He says this, The more a person limits himself, the more resourceful he becomes. Let me say that again. The more a person limits himself, the more resourceful he becomes. I want you to notice that Daniel was limited by his circumstances, his location, the generation and time that he was born into, the culture that he was a part of, the government that he was under, the education that he had, the friends that he was with, his employer. And yet it was in that very place that God was teaching him to persevere under pressure. And I want you to notice something that Daniel did not choose to utterly reject the culture that he was in, did he? He chose to be in the world and not of the world. He participated in the education, but limited himself from the king's food. He learned the language, but didn't take on the philosophy. He still believed in the one true sovereign God, even 
at the threat of his life, and we learn this later on. He sought to be both salt and light, immersed in the world around him, but not conformed to it. He, under various limitations, both those imposed upon him and those he imposed upon himself, flourished. How? How could a man like this flourish? Because he knew that under God, when he limited himself for God's sake, that God could use him with unlimited potential. And that's true for you and I. When we limit ourselves for God's sake, we say, no, I won't do that. No, I won't do that. No, I'll intentionally give my time to devote myself to God and his people, to be a part of a church in a culture that doesn't like it that you go to church, to read your Bible and pray every day when you are constantly have people after you to make you get more things done, to take quiet time away to spend with God. When you set aside one day a week for rest and you don't work on that day, you don't even pick up your emails. You don't read text messages from work because you're one of God's people. You intentionally limit yourself from the overreach of technology by switching off at night time, by putting your phone down at 5pm and not picking it up until 8am the next day. By limiting yourself and saying, you are saying you are more available for God. And that is exactly what Daniel did. The more a person limits himself, the more resourceful he becomes. Daniel set God-honoring boundaries. He realized that he was limited by the circumstances that he had, but it didn't limit God. I'll tell you the same for your life and for my life. You think you're limited, but God is not limited. You think you're under pressure. God is not under pressure. You need to get to know a sovereign God who took all the pressure, the worst of humanity, the greatest pressure the world has ever seen was on a man upon a cross, poured out upon him and he took it fully to the point where he was utterly forsaken by God the Father. And he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus said that and emptied himself He yielded up his spirit at the last. Why? So that we who limit ourselves for him would know that he has given everything for us. And when we limit ourselves now, we know we have an eternity of reward with Christ to come. It will always be worth it for you if you limit yourself for Jesus. And that is the limiting principle. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, we thank you that you have uh, taught us through the book of Daniel. And you will teach us through the book of Daniel. Help us to see Jesus in the text. Help us to know him better. Help us to model our lives after your son. But be changed, compelled in our hearts by God who would give himself utterly for us. And we give you thanks now in Jesus' name. Amen.